Good evening, everyone. Uh, my name is Diana Morris, and I have the great pleasure of being the uh, director of the Open Society Institute um, here in Baltimore. I want to thank you all for joining us this evening for another conversation um, about race. Uh, Carla Hayden is unable, from, who is, of course, as you know, the director of Enoch Pratt Library, is unable to be with us tonight, but she does send her regards. In fact, as many of you know who've been coming to this series, uh, the Enoch Pratt Library has been our partner uh, in talking about race for over five years, and we very much appreciate that partnership. Um, I also want to uh, just recognize uh, one of our board members here, Ann Perkins, is from the OSI Baltimore Board, and I just want to thank her for uh, all the guidance that she provides to us. And also, I want to thank Vernon Reed, who has been one of the people who has really invested in our work so that we can, can continue to have this Talking About Race series. And uh, finally, I want to thank Deborah Rubino, who has curated this series over the years. Um, today, we're, going to, we're really fortunate. We've had wonderful, uh, really exceptional speakers over the years um, who have a deep understanding of how race affects opportunity and justice across the country, but also right here in Baltimore. And tonight will be no exception. We're going to hear from two men who have considerable experience using different approaches, different tools, and different programs to address uh, some of the barriers that racial discrimination and Im implicit bias um, have created. You know, at the Open Society, uh, we try to be very aware of racial dynamics in everything we do. Uh, because we're really trying to create greater opportunity and justice for all of us in the community, including um, people who live in poverty and who historically and currently um, experience discrimination um, in their lives. Many of the topics that we've explored um, in this series over the years actually relates pretty closely to what we're focusing on at the Open Society Institute. Uh, we are very focused on advocating for drug addiction treatment for all those who need it, for curtailing the overuse of incarceration and putting programs in place that keep people out of the juvenile and criminal justice system in the first place, and for those people who do enter it, making sure that they in fact have second chances to reestablish themselves and become part of the community. And we're also very focused on making sure that children have every opportunity to become excited about school and engaged and successful in school so that they're prepared to be young adults and part of our community in the way that all of us uh, adults hope they will be. And we want to make sure that they're never pushed out of school by harsh uh, discipline policies. So tonight we're going to turn to the new initiative that President Obama announced on February 27th. My Brother's Keeper, and it's an initiative that is meant to call attention to the needs and the great ability of boys and men of color to determine what works to help these uh, young men and also boys uh, stay on the right track so that they are successful and meet their full potential, and frankly also to encourage all of us to, to invest in these approaches. Uh, what the President said about this was, by almost every measure, the group that is facing some of the most severe challenges in the 21st century in this country are boys and young men of color. His goal with this program is to provide the support needed to think more broadly about the future of these young men, 
by building on what works, knowing when it works, and so that uh, at critical life-changing moments, these boys and young men have the support they need from all of us. The initiative is an interagency effort to improve educational and life outcomes and to address the persistent opportunity gaps faced by boys and men of color. But it also calls on all of us in the community, corporations, foundations, and individuals to do our part. The initiative aims to help determine the public and private efforts that are working and how to expand on them how the federal government's own policies and programs can be better shaped to support these efforts, and how to engage both state and local officials, the private sector and the philanthropic community, so they're all working together for this common purpose. So tonight we have two really wonderful speakers with us who are directly involved with this initiative and who've been working on these issues, frankly, in other ways for many years. Joe Jones is, many, is known to many of us. He's the CEO of the Center for Urban Families, which just celebrated its 15th year in Baltimore. It's headquartered here, and he is actually also the vice chair of the Open Society Institute board. Joe uh, may live here, and he works here, but he's also a national leader in the workforce development movement, in the fatherhood movement, and in providing services. And through his professional and civic involvement, he really is having a national impact. Damon Hewitt is an Open Society Foundation's special advisor for special projects, so he's a special guy. Uh, he's a, a senior advisor for us, and he's going to be sharing information on what is occurring um, across the country on this initiative. He has been working very, very closely with the White House and with some of the philanthropic um, foundations across the country have had, that are early supporters of this work. Before he joined um, Open Society, he was a director at the NAACP uh, Legal Defense and Education Fund, where he worked on public outreach for education equality issues such as school integration, fiscal equity, affirmative action, and school discipline. And as I said, he's been very much involved communicating regularly with the White House and the various foundations involved on this collaboration with my brother's keeper. So before turning um, the uh, stage over to them, um, I just want to say a few logistics. If you'd like to tweet about the conversation tonight, you can use the hashtag OSIMBK, my brother's keeper. And um, also the conversation between um, Damon, and jo Damon and Joe will be followed, as always, by a question and answer period. So We'll have um, a microphone over there uh, that you can use so that everyone can um, hear you easily. And finally, if you haven't signed up um, for our website, I hope you will do so. Um, it's audaciousideas.org, audaciousideas.org. And that's a place where we can tell you about other events that are coming up and invite you to join us. Uh, for any of our programs. Uh, we really like it. your participation is very helpful to us to figure out what kind of programs to uh, feature next, so please do communicate with us regularly. So with that, I'll turn it over to Joe and Damon. Thank you very much again for coming.
Well, good evening, everybody. What's up, Baltimore? Hey, that's what I'm talking about. Hey, look, this is really an opportunity for Damon and I really to have a conversation. We wrestled with whether or not we should have a moderator. And we thought, you know, if we're talking about my brother's keeper, why do two black men need a moderator? Right? So we said, we're we we just going to go for it. Right? And so let's start by, uh, I know some of you know me, and Diana mentioned, you know, I'm the head of the, and founder of the Center for Urban Families. And I'm, I am honored that we, this year, celebrated our 15-year anniversary. Uh, with that said, we do have a, a, a brother who's with us who, uh, I'm, I'm going to tell you a little bit about him real quick. He's 39, right? That means he's younger than me. He is not yet married a year, so he hasn't been married as long as I am. But the brother has accomplished some tremendous things in his personal and professional life. And I thought we would start by asking Damon to share a little bit about who he is and how he came to be an attorney. We had a rich conversation about this that I thought was really interesting, particularly this whole oddball conversation that we had. <laughs> sure. Uh, first of all, good evening. And, and thanks, Joe. Great to share the stage and, and just some time with you uh, today, as always, and, and to Diana, Deborah, and the staff of uh, Jesse, others, Open Society Institute Baltimore, our sister institution uh, for Open Society Foundations in New York City. Um, you know, every, every person, every family, every city uh, has a legacy and a history. And to uh, think of ourselves or the people with whom we interact every day as if we appear from out of nowhere in a vacuum will be uh, false, uh, to, to say the least. Uh, for me, my, my family's story can't tell you the origins of the family uh, way back, but uh, certainly for the last few generations since they're in and around New Orleans, Louisiana. Uh, I'm a New Orleans native, born and raised, uh, and educated in the state uh, all the way uh, through the fortunate years of having, be able, having been able to attend college there. Uh, my parents, uh, like I, were children of privilege, not because we had significant wealth, but, but we, we did have opportunity that was paid for by the sweat equity of grandparents who were uh, ultimately domestics, junkyard operators, small shopkeepers, truck drivers, and what have you. Uh, my mother was the first in her family to attend college, the first and only of her siblings, even though she was the eldest. Uh, so that opportunity did not translate uh, to her three brothers. Uh, my father uh, was a second in his family to attend college, but all throughout school, elementary, middle school, high school, college, they attended segregated institutions of education, uh, initially by law segregated, and then uh, by significant practice reinforced uh, through campaigns of oppression and often uh, terror in, in Louisiana uh, and, and throughout the South. And so I had that baseline of parents who were able to attend college, and I knew that many of the people in my neighborhood and Holly Grove and, and neighborhood in New Orleans, if you know it, didn't have that, that opportunity. Um, and I felt myself sometimes, and I felt like I was treated as I was somehow an anomaly, an oddball, uh, unique somehow. Oh, wow, you get to go to that school? Oh, well, you got those grades? Oh, well, you got that scholarship? And it's not because I was born smarter than anyone else. Uh, it's not because necessarily of just my own hard work, although I did work hard, I realized that even within a community that didn't have significant wealth or lots of privilege, I still had that opportunity 
and that privilege. And that actually haunted me, right? Mm. Why do, don't the other kids from my neighborhood, mm. my community, have these same kinds of opportunities? Why aren't they at the same schools when we move on to high school? Or why hardly any of them, um, I think you can think of one who went to college, mm. you know? Um, and for everyone who went to college, I could, you know, for everyone who graduated from high school, I could think of one who was in jail. Mm. I think of one young man who was actually killed, murdered uh, in the drug trade. So, you know, I, that haunted me, and I wanted to figure out what I could do to make sure that other young men, other women, other uh, girls, other boys in my community and other communities had those same kind of mm. opportunities. And so I decided that I wanted to change the education system like so many young people do, uh, think, and I thought I'd be a teacher, and I said, no, I think I'll change it through being a lawyer. And that's what I decided to do. Man, so that, that uh, Louisiana or New Orleans experience, uh, to a great degree, has shaped who you are as a man now, a husband, and I'm waiting on the clock, man, for that kid to come, man. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, Damon and I were both uh, very fortunate with a host of others to be in the White House on uh, February 27th when President Obama announced My Brother's Keeper. And Damon, uh, I don't know about you, but for me, that was such a surreal and special moment, uh, particularly when you saw this group of young men uh, who uh, were invited to join the president and one was selected to introduce him, to introduce him. And the, the emotional bond between this young man and the president was so overwhelming. And the faces of those young men uh, were so special that you wanted it for every young man of color that you could ever come across. And when I looked around that room, <laughs> and, and, and one, one snapshot that will forever be in my mind is the snapshot of Al Sharpton, the Reverend Al Sharpton, and Bill O'Reilly oh, <laughs> being in the same yes. room. Uh, what was it like for you? <laughs> well, you know, I have to say, um, because of the work that I do, uh, not because I'm a person of influence, I've had, I've had the chance to, to uh, attend meetings at the White House or different of the, the wings and office buildings in the past. But as I said that night, uh, this time felt different. Huh. It felt different because I felt that uh, somehow the issues I cared about, the people on whose behalf I work every day and with whom I walk this walk every day, that we had somehow claimed space. Not that we had arrived, uh, not that everything was, was necessarily a mission accomplished, mm. but that finally, at the very, very mm. highest levels, the issues, the people, the communities were getting some focused mm. attention. Something that I think that uh, I had long yearned for. Um, and something that I hadn't felt, even in this same administration, mm. I hadn't quite felt it. Uh, I think many of us, you know, shared tears of joy when President Obama was was elected. Uh, I remember I was actually in a room in New Orleans that night doing voter protection work, and the only at the time black federal judge in in New Orleans was there, and I saw a tear coming mm. down his eye, and I thought, what a special moment! Mm. Talking to my dad that night, what a special moment! But that didn't change things overnight, right? And even with my brother's keeper, things aren't changed overnight. But I felt the promise that we saw. In that moment on election mm -hmm. night, in 2008, I, start, I started to think, well, finally, now we're starting to see the kind of movement that we want to see, not just on a discussion agenda, but potentially on a policy agenda mm -hmm. that could be transformative. And just, you know, on a personal level, my heart just really, you know, welled up when I saw uh, those young brothers there in the, in the, in the big spotlights mm -hmm. and headlights. And 
you know, not that this should be the only measure, but they weren't fidgeting. Yeah. They weren't nervous. Yeah. They weren't standing at attention military style <laughs> either. They were comfortable in their own skin. Mm -hmm. They were being who they were mm -hmm. in that place on that stage mm -hmm. with the most powerful person on the face of the earth. And that's, and, and that's what a lot of this work is all about. Not necessarily, uh, we, we, we want to transform lives and transform opportunity, but we also want to give young brothers just a chance to be themselves, mm. to live without fear, to walk in confidence, and to walk into opportunity instead of having to carve out a tunnel for every uh, step that they take. That, that's what a lot of this yeah. is about, man. You know, it's funny, you mentioned that. I, I went to the bathroom, uh, and uh, I... The room that we went, we were in the east room, and you had to go down uh, a hallway and then down a set of stairs to get to the bathroom. And as I'm going down, uh, several of the young men who were invited to be on the podium with the president were coming from the bathroom. And these, these, are, these are adolescent boys who typically you see in an urban community whenever there's a car going by or there's another person going by, often look at, look at them with a lot of skepticism, in some cases fear, because you're not, not sure what the person next to you or the person in the car may do to you. But you saw them almost skipping through the White House. And you, I know that the president personally said to his staff, let these boys be boys. And you, you saw them in an environment where they felt respected, they felt loved, and you want that for every child in every community that we come from. And so for me, you know, My Brother's Keeper is an opportunity to uplift uh, the acute issues that we know are impacting our boys and young men of color, but at the same time realizing that all of us play a role in creating safe spaces for them. So Damon, when you, when you think about creating these safe spaces and your work uh, you know, now with the foundation, but predating that at the uh, NAACP Legal Defense and Education Fund, when you look at some of the social injustices, what are those issues that make it necessary for the president to even announce my brother's keeper? Well, some people should say, well, why do you need a special case for boys and young men of color? Right. And, and, and I think that's the, you know, as I say, a $64,000 question. Mm -hmm. Many people uh, wonder. And one of the oddest questions I got was, why now? Mm -hmm. And I thought, why not before uh, was, uh, what, what was the answer. But I think that obviously, you know, and, and I know you felt this as well, that uh, there was something about the, some of the things that have happened recently. Uh, the tragic death and loss mm. of Trayvon Martin, of Oscar Grant in Oakland, California, George Davis, uh, who's also killed in, in, in Florida, and countless other young men. There's even been some young women who have, uh, been killed uh, as well. But these incidents in particular, the, the tragic loss of life, the loss of potential, in each case, uh, the best way, to, the most charitable way to characterize it uh, was a uh, irrational perception of threat. And we'll talk mm. more about that, I think, mm. in, in a little bit, these perceptions that drive so many of our human interactions. Uh, but the truth is, for all the good that philanthropy does, for all the good that people in this room have done, those of you who have given of your, your own funds, and in some cases your own wealth, or your own time and other human capital. Uh, for all that we do together, there's still this seeming intransigence, mm -hmm. this kind of stuck in placeness of these systems uh, that are inherently oppressive to many communities, communities of color uh, and, and poor communities getting uh, the brunt of it. So there's a few different domains that I call them or, or areas of fields that we call out 
uh, and a summary of a forthcoming report that was set to issue that's entitled A Time for Action. Mm. It's about mobilizing uh, philanthropy in particular, but doing it not in an insular fashion, but doing it with other stakeholders and other sectors as well. So we talk about the persistent disparities in educational opportunity. I see my brother Chaz here, uh, who's done so much work on educational opportunity and on the school to prison pipeline where young people are pushed out of school before they have a meaningful mm -hmm. opportunity to get their educational careers on track. We see these persistent disparities in health in all realms, uh, not just physical health and people think about lead paint, what have you, but also emotional and behavioral uh, health as well. Uh, there's a, what the research is telling us, what's called a toxic stress of living of intense environments which are not always, but sometimes plagued by violence, sometimes characterized by concentrated mm. poverty. And that has effects not just on an individual or child, but has intergenerational mm -hmm. impacts, if not even a cumulative impact from one generation to the next, that toxic stress. Now we call out economic opportunity, and as they say, jobs, jobs, jobs. Uh, we know the historic rates of uh, unemployment and underemployment mm -hmm. uh, in communities uh, we also know that mm -hmm. the significant disparity uh, within African-American and sometimes Latino and other communities as well, where the unemployment mm -hmm. rates are much higher. But what people don't talk about enough is the lack of access to quality jobs, mm -hmm. econ broader economic mm -hmm. opportunity, and entrepreneurial opportunity as well to actually build wealth and transfer it from one mm -hmm. generation to the next, something that does not happen mm -hmm. uh, in black and brown communities and other communities of color uh, enough. Uh, and then there's also justice system interaction, uh, which you know I, I think OSI Baltimore has done so much fantastic work. Monique Dixon uh, and others here on the collateral consequences, the reentry of those hundreds of thousands who return to their communities mm -hmm. each year, uh, and not enough, we believe, has been done on that front end as well to stop the entry mm -hmm. in the first place uh, for low-level offenses. Uh, and you know, we talk about school to prison pipeline in the education context, but there's a way in which we could use school to prison pipeline as a paradigm to understand all that's happening. Uh, the investment on that back end instead of the investment on the front end. That's seemingly sad and almost, uh, I won't call it inevitable because it's not, uh, but sometimes it feels that way path uh, from what should be a place of opportunity in education uh, to a place of desolation, a place of of isolation and a place of capture. Uh, and it's this weird duality where there's this kind of seeming like uh, simultaneously locked out of opportunity, but trapped and kept in to these systems and structures that are not only not fulfilling needs, but also stifling dreams and aspirations. So, you know, I'll stop there, but I think that in each of those domains, health, education, uh, justice, economic opportunity, the disparities are plain, they're patent. I will not say that black men, brown men, native men uh, have a monopoly on disadvantage or lack of opportunity. That's not the case. Uh, but I think it's important that this initial step happen to call out through both a race and gender lens a unique set of circumstances. There's actually a, a line in, the, in uh, the summary of our report uh, in which we say our vision of opportunity will benefit all Americans but it will not be achieved by a one-size-fits-all approach. Mm. And what that means is we can't assume that a rising tide always lifts all boats. Sometimes as that tide rises, other boats are going down in the trough. 
uh, at the same time. We actually have to target our interventions and target policy to make sure that nobody is left behind in our communities. And so the things that we're calling for for boys and women of color here also should be called out for women and girls of color. Mm -hmm. Also should be called out uh, for poor white people uh, as well, or middle class white people who have uh, felt also a significant harm in this new normal of this new economy. And so the notion that one size fits all we're saying the day for that is over, if there ever was a day for it, that we have to have targeted approaches that benefit all of our communities, whether it's disparities or whether it's just general lack of opportunity. You know, uh, so February 27th of this year, uh, the president invites folks to the White House to announce my brother's keeper. And since that time, there's been a groundswell of interest uh, across the country. Uh, in Baltimore, uh, is no different uh, than other communities where uh, this notion of being my brother's keeper is is catching. Uh, it's 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 timely. It's uh, it's something that you can react to. You can you can put your arms around in, ter in terms of an emotional uh, pull. But what it actually is, or are the tenets of my brother's keeper? Right. Uh, well, essentially, I think the best way to view the my brother's keeper initiative is as a call to action. As President Obama's very personal. Mm -hmm. Uh, call to action. But it's personal, but uh, because of his bully pulpit and his seat of power, he's able actually to mobilize significant activity. Uh, first, most notably within the federal government, where there was an interagency task force of uh, over a dozen federal agencies uh, that pulled information about the best of what they thought they could do uh, to actually address these issues, not just for individuals, but for entire uh, neighborhoods uh, and communities. Uh, as well. Uh, there's also some commitment to specific actions, or at least recommendations, I should say, for specific actions uh, by various federal agencies that are in the federal government's report that was released just a few days ago. Uh, but also important, uh, there's been a mobilization of action within the private sector as well. So uh, the philanthropic community, many nonprofit organizations, including your organization, the center, uh, uh, have been mobilized. Now, and I say mobilized, not that they were standing still before them. Because obviously, you know the 15-year history of, of Joe's significant work, uh, the work of OSI Baltimore, and many other organizations uh, in this room and in, in this city in particular. Uh, but mobilizing the sense that it's a calling out of the, time, of the notion that this is the time for us to work together across barriers, across sectors, even across cities. To, to learn from each other, to understand what each other is doing, but also to make common investments on big bets, uh -huh. big things that we can actually achieve together in true fashion. And you know, when I see these moving parts in corporate America with people like Magic Johnson uh, and George Shiberia, who's the CEO of Deloitte, uh, when I see things moving within philanthropy and what I'm told are unprecedented ways. You know, I've been in a philanthropy diner for for five years, and I marvel at the kind of things that you all have been able to accomplish because it's so darn hard. Huh. I thought foundations just work together, uh, as a matter <laughs> of course, but apparently that does not happen. Uh, and so I've had the, the great fortune of coordinating in my role the activity of 11 foundations, uh, many of which have made investments in the past and currently uh, here in the city of Baltimore. Uh, 11 foundations that have been kind of the initial funders or sponsors of the private side parallel to the My Brother's Keeper initiative. So there's lots of moving parts. There's not like a particular thing to turn to. There's not a particular a government My Brother's Keeper office. And I think that's as it should be. Because if there was a My Brother's Keeper office today, it probably wouldn't be there a couple years from now 
when this administration is gone, Democrat or not, uh, Republican or not, the Independent or not, uh, in the White House. I think the great opportunity, Joe, is to actually build not a thing that we can look at, but we can build uh, a new normal, mm. build a new mm. paradigm. And so I think the president, we were all looking at the president at the announcement, looking at those young men, but he and they were looking back out yeah, at us yeah. about what are you going mm -hmm. to do and what can we do together as a collective? Because unless we build something that can last, this will be a flash in the plan. <clears throat> Now, I know the president has a personal uh, commitment. We've heard from him, and those others involved have a commitment as well. And so now's the time to figure out how can we systematize, operationalize uh, this so it has a legacy impact and not just one for a year or two. You know, it's funny. Uh, about a year ago, uh, last month, uh, President Obama visited Baltimore and stopped by the center. And we had organized a group of our graduates, all of whom were, you know, now employed and several of our key employer partners to have this conversation with the president about what is actually needed to help people who are the most uh, disenfranchised in our country to get from behind the eight ball to in front of the eight ball. And it was this moment when he and one of the guys who uh, is a graduate of our workforce development program, but also graduated from our responsible fatherhood program. And I said to the president, I said, I want you to understand that this young man over here has overcome some hellacious odds to not only overcome some of the things that he was doing in the community that weren't necessarily healthy for the community, but to get attached to the labor force and then go back and reestablish a relationship with his two sons. And when I said that, immediately this young man and the president engaged in this conversation about fatherhood. And it was as if the rest of us were no longer in the room. And to hear him talk personally about the fact that he didn't have a father in his life growing up, how he struggled, how he made bad choices. And then on February the 27th, uh, I'm sure you will recall this one particular moment. You know, we were on the opposite sides of the room. Uh, but the president said to the young man, to the young man in the uh, in the White House, he said, uh, you know, I got high. And. The guy who was sitting next to me, did the president say he got high, <laughs> right? And it was, <laughs> yeah. And, you know, this was him being real. And, you know, a, a several of those young men who were there were from Chicago. And as many of you may know, uh, over the last year or two, uh, Chicago has experienced some pretty significant upticks in violent crime, as, you know, many urban communities do from time to time. And uh, so he went to visit these young men in Chicago, and they were sitting in a circle having this conversation. And one of the guys looked at him and said, look, man, you know, I know you're president of the United States, but you don't understand what we deal with on a day-to-day -day basis, right? How we can't walk down the street. We can't go to the playground. And it also happened to be a period where this young lady who had performed at the, uh, at the, uh, the White House, I believe it was for the uh, State of the Union address or the inauguration one or two. And she, yeah, and she she went back to Chicago and she was shot and killed. And so this was, you know, the president and the first lady are from Chicago. And so this experience of talking to this young man at the center, uh, talking to these young men in this support group format in Chicago, this young lady with all the promise in the world being, you know, shot down when she wasn't she wasn't an intended target, helped to fuel this sense of urgency, uh, the sense of I have got to do something uh, about this issue. And I've got to do something about it now. And to see that momentum and that spirit coalesce 
around my brother's keeper. And then to see that we have our foundation partners. And, you know, I know Diana, who has been the only head of OSI Baltimore, has spent a number of years, you know, developing a strategic approach to dealing with these issues. And while there hasn't been a direct portfolio addressing the needs of boys and men of color, everything that takes place at OSI around the school discipline issues, around uh, reentry, around education, has a, you know, a direct attachment to the uplift of boys and young men of color. And I'm so very proud that we here in Baltimore have an opportunity. Uh, I see folks like, you know, Selwyn Ray, Antonio Carpenter, uh, Mark Matthews, uh, I know uh, Diana uplifted Vernon Reed. It's funny, Vernon and I grew up living across the street. Our addresses were the exact same number, but we lived across the street. That's just a quirky in Baltimore, North Avenue. And, you know, our lives took two different pathways, but we've come back together as men of color, caring deeply about our community in, 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 in different and collaborative ways. Right. And we talked earlier, and you had mentioned this whole notion of a call to action, right. right? Not necessarily a funding stream that's going to address every issue. There wouldn't be enough, <laughs> enough money right. to do it. But talk about this, this notion of a call to action. Well, you know, I, I think it's... It's a call to action. It's a call to consciousness for those who have not been so uh, awake and aware and, and mobilized. Uh, but it, it, it is a, an opportunity. It's a platform for us to have what some will call a national conversation, but also for there to be conversations in individual communities, mm -hmm. like the one that, that you led, uh, uh, Joe, when there was a, a kind of a, a tour, so to speak, of White House staff going around the country mm -hmm. to cities like uh, Detroit uh, and Baltimore and elsewhere, they'll be in Oakland, I believe, uh, at, uh, over this weekend and next week, uh, really calling up the issues as they play out in local communities. Because we know that uh, at the, the issues that we face, the challenges we face, but also the opportunities that we see are happening in these places where there are critical masses of, of boys, young men of color. Uh, I do want to say that in terms of philanthropy's role in response to the call to action, because there have been such significant philanthropic investments, there is a degree to which philanthropy can and should step up its commitment, that it should strive harder to align the strategic focus and its resources, dollars and otherwise. At the same time, there's a way in which philanthropy's best role, uh, whether it be individual or whether it be uh, uh, larger foundations, mm -hmm. is to actually invest early and not only well, help to prove what works, right, but also invest early mm -hmm. in innovative and promising approaches and fill gaps. But most important of all is to leverage a larger pool of resources. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, William Bell, president of Casey Family Programs, gave a keynote address at a conference this past weekend in Washington, D.C., and he talked about how philanthropy nationwide uh, issues about $50 billion plus dollars in grants a year, $50 billion larger than the economies of some countries, right? Significant. Uh, but on education alone, at various levels of government, federal, state, and local, we're spending over four to five hundred billion a year. That's just on education, right? Just to give you a sense of the outsized impact that federal resources and influence can have. So if we're not leveraging, uh -huh. we can spend as much as we want in philanthropy, and I know most of uh -huh. you think it should be more, and I think it should be more too, <laughs> uh, right? But um, we can spend as much as we want, but if we're not leveraging it and using this call to action as an opportunity for paradigmatic shifts in policy, 
paradigmatic shifts in orientation of how we do our work, uh, things that are going to have a legacy impact, we will not have heeded the call. Uh, movement uh, is not the same as progress. And so what we need is significant mm -hmm. progress and something that will be lasting. So, you know, thinking about this issue of race and racism, uh, let me ask a basic fundamental question, right? Race and gender. Can a woman, can someone who's not heterosexual, can someone who's white be my brother's keeper? But of course. <laughs> uh, we, we are all our brother's keeper. And my colleague Rashid Shabazz, Open Society Foundations, uh, who happens to have a daughter, uh, wrote a piece called My Sister's Keeper. Hmm. Uh, and, and it wasn't just a, just a few lines on text. It was really uh, more about our orientation uh, to our young men and our young women in particular as they mature into uh, uh, adolescence and adulthood. But yes, I think we all have, have a role to play. Um, in fact, it takes, not only do we have a role that we could possibly play, it necessarily hmm. uh, takes all of us. I'm going to probably jump the question a little bit and talk uh, just for a minute about uh, the role that racism plays in our society. Mm. Uh, to cut to the chase, there's such a thing as racism without racists. That Come say it again. Racism without racists. Uh, that there are systems, policies, actions by institutions, paradigms that are essentially racist, but it doesn't mean that there's someone uh, with the white hood on uh, hmm. at the other end of it. Uh, it doesn't mean that there's some invidious intent every time. Now, of course, there's still uh, some you know, sad share of people out there who, who think that way and who act that way, uh, but there's actually a more sinister problem. Hmm. Uh, cognitive science or brain science tells us uh, that because of the way we're socialized, because of sometimes how we're raised, the images that we see, uh, we actually have these unconscious triggers and actions that actually impact how we interact mm. with one another. That's the kind of thing that leads to irrational perceptions of fear, uh, even if they're not necessarily based in fact. Uh, it plays out uh, in our regular interaction uh, as, as ordinary resident citizens with a lowercase c, but it plays out most powerfully when institutions interact with our young mm -hmm. people, uh, whether it be schools, law enforcement, what have you. And if I, if I you can indulge me, I want to give you a couple of examples. Uh, about five years ago, I uh, ran a task force for former Governor David Patterson in New York City. It was called the Police on Police Shootings Task Force. Police on Police. And it was called that because there was a spate of incidents in which off-duty black and Latino officers were shot and killed by on-duty officers when they were mistaken for criminal mm -hmm. suspects. Mm -hmm. Now. When I went into this task force, they wanted a civil rights guy, right, to do it. Um, so I was a civil rights guy. So I thought what we were going to see and address was all the incidents where white officers shot black people and uh, officers and white officers shot brown officers. And what I found was that actually while the, those who were killed in these incidents and an untold number of other incidents in which there were no fatalities but still kind of near misses, while those subjects, so to speak, were black and Latino, mostly in New York, the confronting officers, the shooters, were not just white. Mm -hmm. They were white. They were black. Mm -hmm. They were Latino. They were Asian. And so we realized we didn't have like a white on black problem or white on brown. We had a blue on black problem mm -hmm. and a blue <laughs> on brown problem. 
It was about the orientation mm-hmm. of the officers uh, to people. And then what we further realized was that it wasn't just that there's something bad about police. There's something bad about most of us, mm-hmm. about how we react. Because the research suggests that police officers actually have many of the same devices they hold implicitly or unconsciously are just the same as what many people in ordinary society hold as well. It's just that they have a monopoly on the authorized use of force, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And so when they're in these high pressure situations, shoot, don't shoot, act, don't act, is that a wallet or is that a gun? Mm-hmm. They're prone to make the same kind of mistakes, mm-hmm. but the stakes are raised. And so what has real implications, right, for police training and practice, uh, it really means that you, we can't settle for rooting out invidious, conscious, virulent racism that you can see and it's tangible. We have a much more difficult exercise because you can't just look for bad apples, quote unquote. You actually have to do the hard work mm. to root out the unconscious bias. Not on the, that's the challenge. In terms of the opportunity, the research shows that we actually can mitigate, limit the impact of this implicit or unconscious bias on how it works. Uh, this bias where there's racism without racist, where well-intentioned people. And if you actually, you know, if you have uh, access to internet and when you go home tonight, uh, I invite you to uh, log mm-hmm. on uh, and just Google implicit association tests or IAT. Uh, and this is a test that actually helps test baseline levels of implicit bias. And I won't go into a long explanation about it. I can talk to any of you afterwards if you want to know about it. But take this test and you'll be shocked at what you see. One other quick example. Uh, I was telling Joe, you, telling you earlier, I worked a lot of cases in the South, education cases, school desegregation uh, cases in particular. And a lot of times in these cases, one of the main issues isn't just the quality of facilities, but mm-hmm. also the degree of school discipline and, and punishment, uh, literally, that students receive. And so there's one, one small town in the Mississippi Delta uh, where there's only two high schools. One happens to be majority white, the other happens to be majority black. I say happens because there's lots of reasons why they happen to be. Uh, at any rate, they have the same school discipline policy, uh, but they're enforced in very different ways. At the majority black school, a young woman who's a homecoming queen happened to be a queer young woman, uh, which we think may have also had something to do with what happened, uh, was uh, accused of having a cell phone at school, and it's apparently not allowed. Uh, cell phones, personal PDAs, uh-huh. whatever they call them. Uh, and the principal and the assistant principal decided that she should be suspended out of school for five days and be sent to alternative school for 45 days. Uh-huh. And in many communities, alternative uh-huh. school means basically no education, and that's what it meant here. You go to that trail over here uh-huh. and you just sit there, right? Now, we thought that was just over the top and ridiculous. It certainly had no educational, pedagogical underpinning anything about learning. Like how can you mm-hmm. learn if that happens? So we went to the majority white school in the same day of a site visit and happened to ask that principal, well, how would you handle a situation like this without telling him exactly what mm-hmm. happened? He said, oh, I just confiscate the phone and call a parent. <laughs> and so here's the kicker. The, the principal and assistant principal at the majority black school, they're both black too, mm. right? And so it really, it's not about just what white people need to do or can do, or what, mm-hmm. just what anybody, any group of people needs to do or can do. It's about what we all need to do together, mm-hmm. because we can all be infected with this unconscious bias, or put a different way, this orientation towards people that leads us irrationally to treat them differently. You know, it's one of the things that makes, you know, OSI kind of special and and having a uh, 
you know, an intentional conversation in a series called Talking About Race, you know, and I've attended, you know, several of them, and to see the uh, the collective Baltimore uh, stakeholders come together and have very healthy conversations, because I don't believe if you don't have these conversations, you can never get to solutions that will allow us to get to different places. As we think about what is next for my brother's keeper, particularly, you know, for Baltimore, where we care deeply about these issues, it's my hope that we can continue to work with the foundation community, as we did, uh, to host the My Brother's Keeper Baltimore listening session, to think about ways in which we can organize ourselves to take hold of these issues, create opportunities for our young men and boys of color. And in our Baltimore listening session, for those who, how many people in the audience were there for the Baltimore listening session? You remember that young lady that was in the on the youth panel? She spoke very passionately, very articulately about the needs of women, of, of girls, in this initiative. You mentioned it as well, and obviously the piece that uh, Rashid uh, wrote about his daughter. So why don't we, we, sh we, we shift and, and take time for questions? Uh, and the microphone is over here to uh, to my left. Don't ask us any hard questions. <laughs> Only extremely <laughs> difficult <laughs> questions. <laughs> That's the kind we like. And please make sure that you introduce yourself and your affiliation so that we have a sense of who is with us. Hi, my name is Diane Corbett, and I'm a lifetime resident of Baltimore City. And I've seen a lot of changes in my lifetime. I'm in my late 50s. <clears throat> And one thing I did write down is when you were talking about the initiative and everything, we always talk about the young people, but we forget about the family. Yeah. Because that family dynamics in social work is called PIE, person in the environment. And what I see is we can connect or we can do things with the children, but if we don't do things with the parents, that community that they go back to after they leave us. It's not going to work. And that's what the failure is. And also fail, I said we have to work on the policies, changing the policies in America. So let me ask you, were you walking down the street with Damon and I? Because we were having this exact same conversation. <laughs> no, I know your friend Richard Rowe. <laughs> and we always have a conversation. Um, but I do know, as a social work student at Sojourner Douglas, we get that all the time. And also, I work in the school system in Baltimore County, and there is a difference in their discipline. Um, we have where the students don't go home. We have like four or five desks in the office, and they sit there, and they have to do their whole work that whole week. And then their parents come in, and, and mm -hmm. that's the difference I see in Baltimore County and Baltimore City. So that's one of, uh, when I talk about the policy changes have to be changed to be fair. And also, we want the children to do so much, but what is we as adults going to do to help them out? Because when we close recreation mm -hmm. centers down, we close schools down, there's food deserts. It's a, you know, it's a whole lot. I could be here all night, but we as adults, we want them to be adults and they are children. And then on top of that, the prison population, when they come out of prison, they are stuck right there. Whatever age they went into that prison system, mm -hmm. juvenile, they are stuck right there. No one, and I hope to do my paper, my master's paper on that because that's what I see. And it's not because I know someone, but my son, when he came out of prison, I saw that. He was stuck at that age when he came out, I mean, mm -hmm. when he went in. 
And what I do is talk to him and I pray for him. Um, those are the things that we have to do to start talking back to our children. And Oprah challenged everybody this year to gratitude, speak to everybody. Today I had an opportunity to speak to children. Do me a favor mm -hmm. and sum it up for me real quick because so we got a line I'm of people behind you. The policies, definitely, policies have to mm -hmm. change and we as adults have to change. And a friend of mine, I'm leaving closing, she has an organization called Healer Woman, Healer Nation. If we heal the mm -hmm. adults, the children will fall in back. Sure. Thank you. Damon, can you talk quickly? We, we had this conversation about policy, how we can, you know, we can never have enough funding. And obviously, you know, we need uh, organizations and we need uh, uh, sources of support to address some of the issues that we talk about. But you can never completely program your way out of these issues unless you address some of the policy and structural challenges you, you that we face. You certainly cannot. You know, as a civil rights attorney for uh, over 12 years, I focused on institutional reform. Uh, not just changing things for one person at a time, although that's important and that's meaningful work, but only it's best done when paired with uh, system-wide reform. And so we, we call out uh, the 11 foundations involved in this initiative, uh, the notion that uh, solutions come not just from programs, but from healing entire systems. And I, I do agree with the sister that solutions have to be addressed uh, towards the family mm -hmm. level as well. It's not just uh, individual young men, because I will, I will su suggest that if we focus on young men in a vacuum, inherently what that's going to mean is it's going to actually unconsciously reinforce the notion of them being somehow threatening, of them somehow being uh, less deserving of opportunity, of redemption. That, that, that's what will happen. We have to see them as whole, complete individuals that are our sons, that are our brothers, that are members of families, mm -hmm. members of communities. And that's why some of the solutions we call forth are about not just providing an individual a scholarship or putting somebody in a suit and tie and thinking, uh, we put the image on TV and that's okay, but actually changing paradigms. So actually strengthening the family financial well-being, advancing women's economic security and rights as a means of uh, strengthening those families as well. Enhancing access to rigorous, rigorous curriculum and the kinds of learning that will lead to opportunity uh, in career and wealth building. Developing and scaling preventive strategies that reduce contact mm -hmm. with justice systems for uh, a young man, for his mother, for his sister, for his father. Mm -hmm. So it has, they have to be complete uh, solutions. So we're using what's happening with young men of color and the opportunities there as a industry which to view uh, an entire panoply of opportunity. Now, put another way, we can actually look, as Lionel Guineer suggests, uh, a, a young men as the proverbial canaries in the coal mine. Mm -hmm. And we can look at their experiences uh, and look and understand what's happening with our country as a whole, but also look at not just the challenges, but the opportunities on the other side of that for everybody. Yes, sir. How you doing? Uh, my name is Davon Love uh, with an organization called Leaders of a Beautiful Struggle. Um, one thing you, you spoke to, the issue of racism, um, and I think two, the implications that it has that's relevant to this conversation is one is that it socializes people in the belief that, you know, black, the notion of black inferiority, the particularly, you know, the inability to manage um, and, con and control um, large organizations, you know, the, the, the mm. perception mm -hmm. that, the, that, we, that we can't do that effectively. And then the other one um, that's relevant is the notion of fear. So the fear that people have inherently of black men. Um, and I think the dynamic that we generally see um, is a model where you have um, organizations, institutions that give services 
um, you know, to black people, you know, in predominantly black settings like Baltimore um, that are typically white led and controlled. Um, and so what often happens is, is that we don't see, I mean, I've always had a lot of respect for you, Mr. Jones, being, you know, a black man in control of an organization institution. Um, but I don't think we see enough of that. Um, and so my question is, um, you know, I think my brother's keeper can go one of two ways. Um, it, can, it can either go a way in which more money and resources is put into organizations that currently have executive level leadership uh -huh. um, that is white, that does services, uh -huh. right, particularly folks that aren't from, other from the community, or it can go in a direction where it seeks to empower grassroots folks who are from the community who may not have like a lot of the technical expertise you uh -huh. need to manage an organization in terms of having a board and the paperwork that you got to do for funding, but have the direction and program that would uplift the community. Uh -huh. Um, so my question is, which way do you see my brother's keeper going, um, and why do you see it going in that, in whichever way you say it'll go? Yeah, I know. For me, I see it in, in both directions. And you know, to your point, I do think that we have to figure out more strategic ways to uh, create additional leadership. You know, we have to pass the baton. I mean, you know, you know, I'm I'm in my late 50s. Uh, Damon is 39, and so we, you know, we have at least two people on the stage who are in different spaces in terms of time. But in our communities, we have uh, we have elders in our community. We have to make sure that their experience is transfer is transferred to younger people to make sure that we don't use sort of like the historical, you know, vestiges of things that have happened in our community that kind of cause some of the structural challenges that we have. Uh, one of the things that we tried to do at the center is we created a, leadership, a Practitioners Leadership Institute, and we actually have a fellows program where we identify 10 practitioners from around the country, right, uh, giving them tools and access to resources to be able to build their capacity to deepen their impact on their respective communities, right? And it's not accepting the fact that you start at one level and you can't grow to the next, uh, but it's about putting that structure in place and that support in place so that people can see themselves in a different environment over time, which creates, you know, new leadership. And I think that one of the things that we've been blessed with, uh, we've had folks, like when I talk about Selwyn, uh, for those of us who know Selwyn, I remember Selwyn being, you know, at the health department and has trans, you know, transferred his career through leadership and investment over years to, to develop his own personal growth, but how he's reached back to other young men to create those same kind of pathways for them. Uh, and standing right behind you is another young man, Lance Lucas, who's done the same thing. You know, yeah, I'm gonna call you out, you know. Uh, and we want to make sure that we uplift those examples and not just leave it to chance that these things happen by happenstance. We want to be able to uh, support and cultivate those kind of leaders. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Lance? How you doing? Um, uh, my name is Lance Lucas. I already said that, man. Mike up a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'm uh, president of the State of Maryland Black Chamber of Commerce and the City of Baltimore Black Chamber of Commerce and also CEO of a not-for-profit called Digital Systems. And to you, Joe, you have supported me in the past. And we have some, uh, we did computer training with Center for Urban Families. And some of those graduates are now teachers in Baltimore City Schools, college graduates. So it does work when people work together. But I, I just want to strike, uh, go to that, that particular point. Um, <clears throat> there's one million people that live in Montgomery County, and about uh, 623,000 in Baltimore City. And there's about eight handgun murders in uh, Montgomery County, and about 230 that they count in Baltimore City. And you look at well, what's the difference between these areas separated by about 15 to 20 minutes. And it's uh, economic opportunity and education. So when we look at these things and um, we look at the neighborhoods in Baltimore like Rosemount and Poplar Grove and McGallery Park, these places where I work every day and go to these neighborhoods every day to teach 
um, IT, cybersecurity certifications, basics in computers, because in this area, uh, the unemployment rate in IT is about 1.6%, I think, in the state of Maryland. And it's about 23,000 open jobs. So that's your economic opportunity right there. 96% um, of folks that are born into poverty return to that. It was a study that came out last week about mm -hmm. Baltimore done by Johns Hopkins and it was released nationally. So you're talking about that structural racism. The, the way those these folks, there's, it's, it's not racist, but it's baked into the system, which is uh, characterized in a book called Not in My Neighborhood by a friend of mine's. They talked about how most American cities were built off of structural racism. So we have to attack the structure of the system and, and, and begin with economic opportunity and education. So just to, to make the point about the question that I'm going to ask, um, is a book called The Tipping Point by Malcolm Gladwell. And it says when uh, a certain percentage of professionals leave the neighborhood, like black flight and integration, um, crime explodes by 20 to 30 percent once the professionals leave the uh, neighborhoods because they have no workable role models. So we have to begin to build workable role models in the neighborhoods where they are to change this systemic approach. So my, my, my question is, do you have strategies for corporations to play a role, not to just donate money, but to offer internships, uh, training, mm -hmm. apprenticeships, and in a sizable, measurable, obtainable way in a timely manner as a strategy and not just as a donation. Because as in Finland, they have the best education system in the world. Now, they were agriculture, and when they, they crashed, they asked the corporations to invest in the education system, and then it turned the whole entire country around. So do you address those kind of strategic uh, you know, measurable things and workforce development and looking for industries that are, um, you know, very prosperous right now. Yeah, I'll, I'll th thank you, uh, Mr. Lucas, for, for calling that out because I didn't mention it earlier. Uh, one of the things we've had a chance to do, the philanthropy, is to actually uh, interact with some of the corporate leaders, not necessarily the CEOs themselves, sometimes them, but their, their uh, designees, and really talk to them about the need to, like, go beyond what we already do, which is philanthropy. Uh, go beyond uh, moving their money to actually use their power as, as market uh, forces. And sometimes it's going to mean looking at their own business practices. Uh, so for example, you know, Target Corporation, which I'm not here to endorse, but Target Corporation uh, took one step by deciding to do what they call ban the box, to stop asking about and discriminating against people based upon prior criminal history, especially for these low-level uh, drug offenses when we know mm -hmm. that black people don't use drugs in any greater proportion mm -hmm. uh, than white people, but the enforcement is uh, much, much uh, more enhanced in black communities in terms of drug convictions and also the sentences. Uh, but it can't just be on the back end that the way to help black people and brown people is to uh, treat them fine after they get out of prison. We have to do things on the front end as well. And so building economic uh, empowerment and building wealth and making sure that wealth can be transferred from one generation to the next actually starts with things that corporate America can do by actually strengthening pipelines within the communities, not just where they happen to be based, which is what they typically do, mm -hmm. where the headquarters are, mm -hmm. to like give money to a school, most importantly a charter school actually, uh, but to actually, uh, actually invest their time, their money, their energy in all of the communities where their operations touch, which for some of them is nationwide if not worldwide, mm -hmm. that they have to actually build pipelines of opportunity all across. So I think this is really calling out the distinction between 
uh, what some people call in a derogatory fashion, simple charity and actually transformative investments. That's what we're calling upon corporate America to do. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Hello, I'm Jack Pinnell, the founder of Baltimore Collegiate School for Boys, which is now the only all boys charter school in Baltimore City. And it's modeled after many successes, uh, Urban Prep in Chicago, Eagle Academy in, in uh, New York, and um, Boys Latin Philadelphia. And these are all schools serving boys of color that uh, annually announce that 100% of their, of their seniors are going off to college. And um, when I read through the preliminary report, I, I see very little that talks about the, the deep systemic change that needs to happen in our community around education he, he, here in Baltimore. 11% um, uh, of eighth grade boys are reading at grade level compared to 23% of, of, of eighth grade girls. And I, I'm worried in, the, in this initiative, and by the way, I want to say congratulations uh, to, to Dr. Joe Jones, who um, received you, his, uh, his honorary degree a couple weeks ago, the same, right. the same day. Thank you. <laughs> the same day that your son graduated, it had to be a marvelous, a marvelous it day. It was. And, and, and the work that you do in the community is great. And I think if we do our work well, we should put you out of business. So, the, so there is no pipeline to prison, but instead mm -hmm. of pipeline to college and to sustainable jobs and community and to responsible fatherhood and, uh, and, true, and true economic achievement. But my question is, is that I worry most about this initiative being more a chatter without, without there being outcomes. Without, and I didn't see in the report, I didn't hear the, the, the president, I didn't hear anyone say, that we want to change our dropout rate across the country. And um, uh, Dr. Balfons had an article in the New York Times this week saying that the, the, the poverty is concentrated in about 660 schools in the country compared to 12,000 in the country in about 15 states that are uh, simply uh, dropout factories. And it seems, it seems to me, and the report doesn't really talk about, you know, what about replicating things that work, like urban prep, like these other schools, and like have them across the country. And I sit at I sit I sit at a table with charter school leaders across the country. There are few, very few of them that look like me, uh -huh. and very few of them have the agenda that we have is to really transform a generation of young men. So I wonder if you could talk about uh -huh. that solution: education, schools, schools serving boys of color. Fantastic. Th thanks so much for the work that you're doing, and congrats on the the success, not just for you, but for the young men and their families mm -hmm. and communities. Uh, that, that you serve. You know, I, I think that um, as someone who worked on education policy and litigation uh, for a significant amount of time, one thing I think that's critically important is that uh, we see potential in, in various avenues. Uh, so, I, for example, I think it's foolish for folks to say that uh, charter schools are the enemy, and I think it's also foolish to think that they're, they're, they're the only answer, because if we don't, if, if the public education, traditional public education systems of schools cannot learn from your success, then we haven't succeeded in the investments we've made in the work that you're doing. So mm -hmm. to be able to replicate and scale that can mean many different things. In my hometown of New Orleans, people have taken that to mean every school should be a charter school. Mm -hmm. uh, I think what it should mean is every school should actually have the investments of human capital, of fiscal capital, of talent, of orientation towards young men that allows them, provides a fertile ground uh, for success. And so to the extent that you haven't seen enough of that in the, 
and a government's report. I'm hoping that you do see it uh, and, and what the foundations uh, uh, will say in, in our forthcoming report. But it, it's critical. I think that part of it may be an overcorrection uh, for the notion that there's been lots of critique. People say, oh, everybody says education is the answer. That's the easy piece. Uh, that doesn't mean that we should overcorrect and ignore it. Uh, that we should focus on everything else but education. So I'm glad you lifted that up. And I'm going to take that actually back to my colleagues at the other foundations uh, and kind of use that as kind of a self-regulation, a self-check on what is it we're really saying about uh, education and what's needed and what have we learned from what's been done in the last decade plus. Right. And also, I just want to say that you know we have to really focus on, uh, besides the failure rate, what's happening, dropout rates and so right. on. Like, for instance, I'm sure you know that if you drop out of high school, you have a 69% chance of being in prison. Yep. So, and that's a national tragedy. Sure. And we know we filled our prisons with, with kids. So, so, when you, so we kind of know what the problem is. So why aren't we focusing like our, our resources in a very intensified way? Let, let's throw what we can, not just money, mm -hmm. but talent and resources, like with a sense of urgency about this. If we can build this casino over here in one year, we can transform <laughs> the, our cities in one year. And that's the kind of urgency that I would like to see out of this. Now, we're very good in the African-American community of talking and talking and talking. My father was, was chair, chair of the NAACP in the 1960s and 70s in a Midwestern city. And the same conversation was going on then. But I graduated with, with 100 black men who all went to college in the 70s. So we're sliding backwards. And so the solutions are right in front of us. I just don't want us to talk. I don't want us to spread spread ourselves so thin that we don't have anything to, to, to be proud right. of and success. So I just I appreciate the work you're doing. And thank you so much. Thank you. Yeah, and thank you. And don't, don't look at the task force report as the end of a conversation that will help shape what my brother's keeper is, because it is about communities taking uh, the opportunity to shape what it wants to see for its various communities. And I think that we have started it when we held the listening session, and we need to continue that post that listening session, post this report. And as you heard Damon say, that to be able to take this, you know, this, this comment you made back. But also, if you look at the report, there is, you know, a, a pretty, uh, you know, structured conversation around making sure that children are reading at grade level. Uh, and so there is an explicit focus, and I do know that and the Open Society Foundation uh, is uh, hosting a group of its grantees, with CFUF being one of them, and David Banks, who runs the Eagle Academy, being an, another, through this opportunity, and we will be in New York at the Social Impact Exchange uh, Conference, uh, talking to uh, investors about how do we scale the kind of work that you just mentioned. Uh, I do want to recognize Councilman Carl Stokes, who's joined us. Councilman, thank you for you know spending some time with us this evening. Yes, ma'am. Hi, my name is Demita Chambers, and I work at uh, Bowie State University. Uh, my question oh, is Oh, you one of them smart sisters. <laughs> Uh, my you can say yes. Yes. Okay. All right. <laughs> <laughs> Own it. Um, my question is about um, the role that you'd see uh, colleges and universities playing in terms of mm. working together with uh, nonprofit organizations, um, with community leaders, with um, the, the public school system to be able to help um, young men uh, and, and boys. Let me let me get to take one quick stab at something that the president said that kind of speaks to what you just said, and I'm going to turn it you know, over to Damon. Uh, at, this, you know, at this launch in at the White House, uh, the president was very open, passionate, very caring about 
what he experienced when he went to Chicago and sat down with that group of young men, what happened with that young lady who uh, was shot and killed in Chicago. And then, uh, Damon, I don't know if you, you got the same sense, but his whole demeanor changed when he talked about, uh, I'm not going to the federal, I'm not going to the Congress asking the Congress to appropriate any new money coming out of this administration. What I am going to do is ask every federal agency to assess what it currently invests in and stop funding what doesn't work and to invest in what does work. And so I think that's one indication of how he is looking at uh, rigor uh, in particular, uh, you know, evaluation to be able to determine what happens. But we all have to be engaged in this conversation because one of my concerns is we still don't know a hell of a lot in this country about uh, the needs of African-American men and, bo and boys and men of color uh, in certain instances to make informed decisions about around evaluation design. So I think we have to have more engagement of university and college partners uh, when we get to that stage of the conversation. I think that's a really good uh, point, Joe, about universities using their power uh, of what, doing what they do, being leaders on research. They can also actually uh, be you know, stronger community partners uh, mm -hmm. as well. And it goes well beyond admissions and affirmative action. I've done enough of, you know, I've done the, worked on each of the three uh, big affirmative action cases that have come through the United States in the last decade, uh, 10 to 12 years. and. None of those are an answer. I always got the sense, wow, we're kind of tinkering at the margins. This is a sliver, potentially big and impactful. But the real piece is, regardless of who comes through the door, what kind of pipeline is that university providing for the community where it's situated and the state where it's located mm -hmm. and nationwide as well? I was talking to a brother who came to an OSI Fellows Program. I can't find him in the audience. Harold Bailey. Harold, Harold who, there you go, brother, who, who uh, you know, is doing a pre-doctoral training program. And I share with them, I did one of those programs myself. I didn't go to get a PhD, I got a JD instead. <laughs> uh, but, um, but creating those types of pipelines is really important. And also it's important that we have public and private support uh, for our HBCUs, both public and private. Mm. Um, you know, I, I think they don't get enough uh, credit for the work that they do. And there's been there's some litigation here in the state of Maryland mm. that involves uh, Bowie State <laughs> and others and my good friend John yeah. Britton. Uh, I was one of the lead architects of that litigation. And, you know, I, I think setting universities up to serve, educate, uh, and, and provide for those who are not admitted there is really the big challenge. Mm -hmm. And I think that, you know, uh, I don't know that all institutions are there. Uh, I see more and more who are thinking along those lines, but it's difficult because they're so strapped for resources. Uh, they can barely provide what's needed mm -hmm. for the students who do come through their doors. But unless these schools also serve communities, they're not really serving mm -hmm. the higher purpose. So thank you for what you guys are doing at Bowie State in that regard. Yeah, I, I definitely feel like there is a role, especially when you're talking about partnerships between um, universities and community organizations. That's where I, I think mm -hmm. you can make the biggest, have the biggest bang for your buck, if you will, to be able to have those community partnerships. But right. thank you so much for your comments. How you doing? All right. All right. All right. All right. All right. So you're about 20 years apart. Just about yeah. Something like that. Yeah. He, but he's older. That's what they say. <laughs> something like that. Well, you know, there's something that you guys have in common, right? That has to do a lot with culture, with consciousness and, and cultural consciousness. Meaning, like, you probably listen to Earth, Wind, Fire. You probably listen to KRS-One. 
And so, Earth, Wind, and Fire. Don't get it. Well, and, well you know, for <laughs> generation, you know, the, 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 <laughs> culturally what you were attracted to growing up yes, as far sir, as your yes, music sir. and mm-hmm. things like yes, that. You know, so what happened in the last 10 years is that culturally music has changed in a way that it started to influence youth in a negative way. It's been proven. It is, and um, what I also believe is that that power can also be used for a positive angle as far as bringing positive songwriting and education through the sound waves, right? So um, my name is Marcel Martin. I'm the founder of Careers Kids Youth Enrichment Services. And uh, right now we're working and running pilots at Maya Angelou Youth Academy in DC. Uh, and we're creating an innovative curriculum to kind of bridge the gap between uh, business, technology, and education. So for instance, there was an issue in some of the schools with this youth not learning and understanding financial literacy, the importance of money management. So we created a curriculum called Math Plus Music Equals Money, and it's been running successfully for four years now. So we're, we're, we're continuing to develop these curriculums and um, basically develop strategies that can engage the youth more because they're getting bored, they're falling asleep, they're not wanting to show up. And there's a cultural disconnect. So uh, that's why I mentioned you guys' difference and how what happens now is that we don't, this generation are not born into a, 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 a conscious, a culture of consciousness like you two were, for, because their influence is majority negative as far as what they hear, what they see, things like that. So it's our goal and our mission to kind of show them that there's a, a positive outlook that you can have on music, that you can teach them and instruct them on how to create positive and, um, and positive influential ways to communicate with each other, right? So my question really is what role does uh, my brother's keeper, and I guess OSI, this is kind of a two in the question, um, have in supporting um, innovative curriculum? Because uh, r- right now, you know, we've been pretty much doing things ourselves, but now I'm kind of starting to reach out and see, you know, what, what can we do to help scale these curriculums and put them in more schools? And because it's working, uh, we've done several different uh, evidence-based reports that to kind of see how socially it affects the children, and it's working. But we need support to expand that. So where do where where does the mission within MBK fit in innovative curriculum, or has that ever been uh, you know discussed? Right. You know, I'm, I'm reminded by what uh, Joe said earlier about when we think about what MBK is or what it could be, it's not a single thing. And I thank you for reminding us uh, of that, Joe, because while what I'm about to say is something that perhaps the White House report didn't call out so much, the foundations and others have and the youth with whom we're working and uh, the other nonprofit sector folks have talked a lot about two, two uh, things among many uh, that are relevant to what you said, brother. One is culturally relevant education and pedagogy and curriculum, uh, which, is, which is very important, um, but also a whole larger project that cuts across all of our substantive work areas, and we call it narrative change. Changing the narrative, the uh, often false and typically damaging deficit-based narrative about our young men. And what Mm -hmm. we've committed to doing is not just putting up shiny positive images or positive music per se, we've committed to telling the truth about Mm -hmm. who we are, about who these young men are, about what they've accomplished, about what the challenges are, and what the possibility, t- possibilities are as well. So what that does inherently include, though, is 
challenging these stereotypical and, and often negative images in, the, in all forms of media. So whether it be media, magazines, uh, music, even books where sometimes the issue isn't so much uh, negative images, there's no images at all. Uh, there was a, I forget the exact numbers, but there was a big story in the New York Times a few weeks ago about the very, very low, insignificant number of children's books uh, that actually talk about black or brown characters at uh -huh. all. Um, you have to almost get a special book uh -huh. uh, just to even have those young people appear. And so I think that's, that's targeted towards young children, right, uh, typically, but it's connected to what you're talking about. It's either, whether it's music, whether it's magazines, whether it's books, either it's no image or it's like typically a negative image. Uh -huh. And that has to change. And so that actually reinforces this damaging narrative uh, and it actually gets internalized. I was pleasantly surprised that the White House report called out the internalization uh -huh. of those negative images, and, and even in the cover letter, because I thought that was a provocative place that the White House couldn't go. And look, I'll, I'll tell you, you know, uh, I know this is a public event, but hopefully it's safe audience. <laughs> I'll tell you, I had relatively low expectations of what would come from the White House, because I thought for all of the grit, for all of the beauty of that moment on February 27th, for all of the, uh, the hard work that smart people in administration uh, put into this, I know that they have practical and political limitations. How mm. does this president get away with talking about black, brown, native, Latino young men? How does he get away with doing it for a sustained period of time? But they're still doing it, right? So they actually, I had relatively low expectations of what would come, but they've actually uh, not hit all the marks because I don't agree on with every single thing that they've done or said, right? But I think that they get really high marks from me for actually calling out that narrative piece. And I think it connects to a lot of what you said. Thanks a lot. And for anybody interested in what we're doing with youth, I would just get a shameless plug. Um, we're trying to get involved in more schools, more organizations. Please follow us on careerskids.com. It's K-A-R-I-Z-K-I-D-S.com. Leaders of the Beautiful will struggle back there. Great supporters of us. Um, and thank you so much for what you're doing. And we probably see you again soon. All right. Thank you. All right. Um, hello, everybody. And hello, uh, gentlemen. My name is Cole Tengela. I am the founding director of an initiative called the Kuji Chagalia Project, which uses live performance theater, um, filmmaking, and new media for social justice. And for full disclosure and transparency, I happen to be the recipient of a 2010 Open Society Institute Community Fellowship um, as well that tremendously helped me move my program forward. I want to say to both of you gentlemen, I truly respect each and every one of you. But as I, I was having a conversation, because I'm currently at a Baltimore City, inner city high school um, in West Baltimore, um, every day, uh, four classes a day with my program. And I was sharing with them about this initiative because they were not aware of it, and particularly to the um, African young men. I use that term African. I know what I mean, black old black children. Um, African young men in that class and the African young ladies in that class as well. And... What they shared with me after fully explaining it, I was not as maybe as articulate and knew the nuances that you did. They say, Mr. Tinga they said, Mr. Tingela, it sounds really shallow, for real. Mm -hmm. and, and I said, why do you say that? Because all of a sudden, my problem as a black boy 
in Baltimore from the inner city is being so watered down with everybody else's problem. I'm not hating on, on no Latino kid. I'm not hating on no Native American kid. But my problems as a black boy in Baltimore City, and this young man was speaking because he goes to high school, had an issue with the law, he's on home detention monitor, have to be home at 7, his final exams, came to take his final exam. His issues are particular. My issues as a 51-year-old African man in America trying to use art to do good to empower other African people are different from maybe a Native American gentleman doing that. The young people in the class and I, we found that very offensive that something that we were hoping to be that appeared on the surface maybe to play to certain political ends. And I doubt that with Brother, uh, Brother Obama, President Obama, but it seems that way being used. But when it comes to the actual implementation and the forthrightness to go after the issues that truly impact African people, African boys and African men is being diluted. So I want to know whether or not you felt the same way about this. Question one, you felt it's just as offensive and um, inappropriate. And the second statement is we talked about, I said, I always tell my children, and I work with them, when somebody really is serious about something, they put their own personal commitment behind it, and they show up even when they don't have to and do real work, or they put their money behind it as well. And I told them to follow the money. And they said, well, how much is the president putting behind it? And I said, basically, nothing. But I told them what you said. I told what you just shared. I read that on the website to reallocate funds from things that aren't working and put mm -hmm. it towards this initiative or within their agency, do something particular to empower the ends of the initiative. And he started laughing at me. They said, yo, Mr. Ted Gaylor, for real? That's like asking the football team to give money to the art club. That ain't happening. So with that coming from young people, and I'm trying to be as simple with it, but still respecting their intelligence, they came up with the shortcomings that are initially on the surface. And, um, and I was going to bring some here today, but I wanted to make sure that, the, that it was authentic on my part couldn't make it to the last listening session because my children had a performance. So if you could address those two questions. Do you find it offensive that's being diluted from African boys and men? And the, is it genuine because of lack of genuine targeted uh, line item budgeting? Thank, thank you so much for that, for sharing your, your voice and, and uh, kind of being a conduit for youth, uh, youth voice uh, for, for the, uh, the young people that you're working with. So j just on, on this first person about uh, point about the dilution, I think you actually articulated something probably better than I did earlier about targeted. Uh, you know, we talk in, in the summary of the foundation's report about the need for solutions to be targeted to specific communities, that we cannot assume that what works for one works for all. And it's taken from, you know, there's a, there's a term that, um, a concept that the uh, law professor and activist John Powell uh, has popularized called targeted universalism. That, yes, it's going to benefit all people or many people, but it has to be targeted specifically to certain communities. So that's, that, that's one piece of it. But I think there's also a very real way that we are tangled up in a web of mutuality huh. that we have to be able to wrestle with 
how do we do things that benefit in a targeted way multiple sets of our brothers and sisters without watering it down. And we've had these internal conversations mm -hmm. at Open Society Foundations. Uh, as you probably know, we have a campaign for black male achievement, right? Which was our starting place six years ago, and Sean Dove, our leader of that initiative, is actually now getting a platform to spin that initiative off and create an independent institution, the campaign for black male achievement, to do that targeted uh, focus and work. And that's where the bulk of our investment has gone at Open Society Foundations, many millions. Uh, at the same time, we and other sister foundations like uh, W.K. Kellogg Foundation, which invested heavily in the repairing the breach work over 20 years ago, which was targeted on uh, black men and boys, uh, black males generally, we all realize that we're tangled up in this web. We talked to our, our colleagues in California who say, you know, when we come in and have a conversation, we literally, as in terms of demographic shift, uh, there are more and more Latino brothers and sisters, and we have to figure out how to work with them. Mm -hmm. But we want to do that in a way, and I so appreciate the, this dilution point, that, that does not dilute. It's not some type of uh, pluralist, soft, multicultural piece where we're all Cablin Asian, and we all look alike and think alike and, and what have you. We have to lift up our unique differences, uh, our unique needs, and our unique historical context. Because not all peoples and cultures uh, have a legacy of oppression through slavery. We cannot be afraid to call that out. Not, not all uh, cultures have a legacy where they've been driven off of their land south. Uh, we have to be able to call that out as well. So it may sound Pollyanna-ish, but I do believe that there's room for all of us, but there has to be room. Uh, for all of us, room where we can all call out our unique histories, our unique historical and contemporary context, and learn from each other. Uh, because if we don't, we'll fall victim to uh, divide and conquer. I know that's not what your young men are thinking, uh, but that's what we're trying to safeguard against. So thank you. you know, for and I will, you know, I'll add to that by saying at the listening session, we intentionally reached out to uh, young men <clears throat> in our community uh, who I would say probably mirror the young men in your class. And we asked them to contribute to that conversation. And for those of you who are in that room, uh, you can share your own perspective. But this was a very raw, it was a very hard, it was a very uh, sometimes difficult uh, conversation to have because they were sharing with us their feelings about what they needed in their community. In some cases, what their community did not, uh, you know, did not give to them, did not prepare them for. And so I don't see this as something that, uh, matter of fact, if you ask me, should we have done, should the president have come out or should the president not have come out? I am so encouraged by the fact that we've had this man come out publicly to talk openly and directly about the need for a My Brother's Keeper concept and initiative that can be shaped by the community. Uh, yeah, we're going to need resources to do certain things, but some of it has to do with our ability to work together as a homogeneous unit, uh, recognizing our differences. And I was particularly pleased to see that the Latino young boys that we had in the audience at the listening session were engaged with these African-American boys in spite of some of the stuff that's going on in our community right now. And I think we have a whole lot a promise, right? And I would encourage you to stay connected and to get, get your young men uh, connected to this conversation to make sure that we continue to shape it. You know, I, I'm reminded of folks like uh, Dr. Dre, uh, who started out as a hip hop artist on the left coast, uh, who now just recently sold his business uh, 
for $2 billion. Uh, I think about three. three, excuse me, I don't want to cut a brother short by a billion, right? <laughs> you know, uh, you think about Magic Johnson, who has ownership in the Los Angeles Dodgers. You think about Jay-Z, who had minority interest in the professional NBA uh, basketball franchise, who sold his interest because he's now a sports agent, you know, in addition to being married to one of the baddest women in the, in the game. Uh, so there's opportunity for these young people to come out of certain situations to create wealth in our communities, right? It may take more time than we would really like for it to take, but there are examples of what's taking place with young people who's who've taken their past, their challenges, and shaped it into something very, very positive. And we want to make sure that we continue to have those voices at the table. And I would not be a part of something that wasn't authentic enough to be able to allow people to, to contribute their voice in any way that they deem appropriate. Uh, good evening. Uh, first off, I'd like to thank you for hosting this event tonight. Uh, my name is Stephen, and I am uh, an administrator of health care equity at a large um, health care organization in Baltimore City. Uh, I also do a lot of work in systems theory and system design, and I'm a historian. And I, and I, I focus uh, probably for the last 10 years on the history of Baltimore. What I want to talk about, or what I, the question I want to ask, is the importance of understanding the structure. Now, I'm kind of at that age where now I'm kind of coming, I'm self-actualized, and a lot of the things that I do are kind of coming together and melting together. And one of the things that I'm starting to realize in my work is unpacking the structures. Let me kind of step back for a second. The structures is the policy. And the policy that was created in the early 20th century was designed to do exactly what we see out these uh, windows today, to permanently disadvantage you know, people of color. Uh, Baltimore was the, uh, the learning laboratory for such policy. Uh, most recently, there's been a lot of scholarship. Uh, Antero Piatella, I heard one guy talk about his book, Not in My Neighborhood, you know, about how housing and real estate. A lot of people don't know mm -hmm. that Baltimore desegregated schools two years you know, before Brown versus the Board of Education, but 30 years later, the federal government had to come in and sue them in order to kind of you know, mandate, or sorry, attempt to sue them uh, in order to mandate some leveling uh, of education. Uh, Harriet uh, Washington has wrote, written a brilliant piece called Medical Apartheid about the history of uh, medical research uh, in this country. And it's the only book of its kind. And it's a pretty frightening tale that gives you an understanding of why uh -huh. blacks do not address their own health care, and particularly in a large uh, medical institution. My question is, when I do my lecture, when I do my talks, I am astounded by the, uh, by the lack of understanding about the history of the policy that defined the position that we are in today. How important is it, or is it important, to kind of go back, unpack that history, and really understand what the, the you know, what the systemic design was, what the nature of the design was? Uh, uh, oh, and I left one off the uh, list. Uh, Miss Alexander's book, uh, yeah. uh, uh, the New Jim, Jim Crow. Crow. Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I, I think it's critical. If you don't know where you're mm -hmm. being, you don't know where you're going. I think we have to be simultaneously, though, both historians and futurists about uh, painting not just a bright, rosy picture of shiny people, happy people holding hands, but painting a picture of what these systems would actually look like mm -hmm. if they served well towards positive ends 
uh, our communities, the communities on, on whose behalf we're all working and in which we live and which we walk every day. So I, I think what you're saying is crucial. So we're going to have to cut it, but we're going to give these two young people over here to my left. Don't be looking around like I'm not talking about you as a young person. Yeah, I threw, I threw them off so bad here to turn around and look. Yeah, you, but you got to make it short and succinct. Yes, uh, I was invited to come tonight. Uh, I want to know how to get involved. Uh, I've been involved most of my life. I graduated high school in 1966, and I can truly say that I have not been a person who has thrown away my time. Mm -hmm. But I'm not engaged in a lot of these things because uh, I chose not to be. I have studied uh, history uh, through the years achieved four degrees and a prison degree, been in the military, and I can talk to the young fellows on the street because basically they just want to know who they are, mm -hmm. how they fit into this system, and why we are here. And that's for Hispanic, you know, and I think that if everybody knew our true history and how the system was built on that, the conversation can be had because the young and old, young and old want to know. And so I want to know how to get involved so I can help deliver that. Yeah, I would say, you know, for us in Baltimore, stay tuned to OSI. Uh, we're going to continue to think through how do we take advantage of the listening session, the momentum from that listening session, and the interest to think about next steps as it, what it means to Baltimore. Uh, as you heard Damon talk about, you know, this is the F-11. F-11 sounds like a stealth fighter jet, yeah, no, right. you know. Yeah. Uh, we have, you know, we have... Uh, the basis of report and a set of recommendations that went to the president. But those are recommendations that have gone to the administration, right? What we've heard here and what we're hearing in other places around the country is that there are individual needs and communities and people want to contribute to the conversation to this framework in a way that's meaningful to them. So we don't want to take this, this report and these sets of recommendations as what absolutely has to take place. And so we're still thinking through what that means for us here in Baltimore. And you will hear that through our partners in the foundation. So community. just kind Contact you at your information is in this brochure. Uh, I'm not sure what brochure it is, but uh, Diana probably can. Or yeah. Okay. And you can also log on to uh, boysandmenofcolor.org. Mm -hmm. It's a it's a, a platform website for uh, a broader set of 40 foundations who work on these issues, but has specific information about the 11 foundations' activity, who are more most closely aligned in a parallel effort to my brother's keeper. Thank you. Thank you, man. For those four degrees, including the one from the criminal justice system. Right. What's up, old man? Hey, what's up? My mm. name is Nicholas Moss. I work with Safe and Sound. And I mean, I came to the last brothers, my brother's keeper. And like, as a black male, I feel like a commodity. Like, mm. so many people get paid for my struggle. Mm. <laughs> when, when I'm in my neighborhood, they get paid to lock me up. Then when I get mm. locked up, they get paid to watch over me. Then I get a public defender or a lawyer who get paid to do that. Then a judge that get paid. And it's like all I did was get into a fight or something. Mm. So many people getting so much money. And then we come to these workshops and they say like, all right, he say my brother's keeping we doing something for the black youth. And it's like everybody getting paid but us. That's mm. all we really want. <laughs> 
I mean, we mm. we get in trouble for selling drugs, and that's what bringing our community down. And but that's what we really doing. We just trying to get some money at the end of the day. Like the number one fam black owned family business is the drug trade in my community. Because when you go to the corner store, the liquor store got Koreans in it. The Chinese spot got somebody else in there cooking. It's like, when are we gonna get our own stuff? When are we just gonna get some money? That's it. That's all yeah. I want. <laughs> Let me say, uh, I don't know who set that brother up to be give the last question, right? Uh, but let me say this, man. Uh, one of the things that I want you to know, and what's your name again? Nicholas. One of the things that I am personally about in the work of the Center for Urban Families and everybody in my network is about giving young people opportunity. When I think about uh, Lance, Lance, still stand up again. Stand up. Because I want you to see him, right? If you're interested in technology, here's a brother who is getting young people connected to employment opportunities and career through technologies, right? If you're 18 and above, you come to the center. We're about getting folks connected to job opportunities, getting them connected to education and career. You, my man. And so you know what we're trying to do, right? Uh, uh, but some of this is, you know, it's, it's going to have to be about personal responsibility, right? I have a personal responsibility to help create an environment for you. You have a personal responsibility to try to create an opportunity for yourself and for your child. And then you also have a, a you know, personal responsibility to reach out to another brother or another sister who struggle, but not to your own detriment. You know, we've got a, there's a healthy balance, you know, and, a, and an equilibrium that we have to face when it comes to some of the struggles in our community. Because I can't go any further for you than you can go for yourself. And I also don't want to risk my own, you know, my own sanity for, you know, even in my own family, I have people that are struggling. And sometimes, you know, to, to tell somebody no until they're ready is very, very difficult, right? But the fact that you came here uh, and you voiced your opinion is, is a an example of somebody who's stepping up for all the right reasons, right? And you're in this space and in this conversation, and you're not on the street, right? And yeah, there are people who are always going to be, you know, taking advantage of us for various reasons, and we have an obligation to do something about it. I know in part Damon, uh, Damon has... Uh, you know, dedicate his professional career to social justice issues, right? I know that the Open Society Institute, you know, where I'm proud to be a board member, has worked on these issues, right? But it's going to take all of us, including you, stepping up to give your voice like you did. And if there are other young people in this room who didn't give a, give a chance to, uh, to give their voice, you know, know that we're going to continue to create spaces for you. That's why we had this conversation, this series about talking about race. Uh, Dan, I don't know if you want to add to that, but I just wanted to make sure that you know that you are very, very special and we appreciate the sentiment you bring to this conversation. Well, and thank you, uh, Brother Moss, for, for sharing. It's very little to say except thank you um, for, for sharing your honest uh, perspective. Look, there's going to be people who will try to commodify you, uh, even, will even use words like asset. Uh, which is another way of, way of saying commodity, although it's meant from a place, I think a good place generally, but it reinforces uh, the same piece. Uh, but it's all this stuff uh, about you, but without you, so how can it really mm -hmm. be for you? And so I understand that. And that's why I think investing in platforms for authentic youth voice and leadership is important because I think, and I don't, I don't want to speak for you in this, but I would just suggest that you mentioned money, getting, getting the money, but it's really wealth. 
because once you have that wealth, you're in a better position to share share mm-hmm. it with others to help somebody else. Uh, when you have children, when you have a family, uh, or helping parents, grandparents, what have you, on an entire community. So it's really about building uh, together. So I, I just really applaud you for starting with the baseline of critical analysis. Because a lot of people who have money in their pocket or even wealth, but they don't have the critical analysis that you brought forth tonight. So we should all be investing in that. Thank you. Well, I want to thank you all for coming tonight, and of course, a special thanks to Damon and Joe. Um, I really appreciate the honest discussion and the uh, ability for people just to be present. Uh, I think that's really the first step to important advocacy and, p- and understanding here in Baltimore. So thank you all. Thanks.